Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I have two brand new movies to review for you, and two others that aren't quite as new, but they've come out sort of recently. And I just haven't gotten a chance to review them until now. And one of the big reasons I only have four movies to review for you, two feature-length films and two short films, is because one of the feature-length films that I saw was a doozy. It was so long, it could have been two feature films, (laughs) conceivably. But anyway, I'm going to start with that one because that will probably be the biggest hit of this week, definitely compared to the other films that I've seen. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Killers of the Flower Moon. This is the latest from director Martin Scorsese, and it's his first narrative film since The Irishman. And it's also one of his longest films. According to Collider, this is his sixth longest film that he has directed so far. Let me just give you a synopsis of some of the other films that he's directed. In terms of narrative films, this is... His second longest. His longest movie was uh, The Irishman, which was 209 minutes. Killers of the Flower Moon is 206 minutes. His other films, My Voyage to Italy, A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese Through American Movies, George Harrison, Living in the Material World, and No Direction Home, Bob Dylan, are all documentaries. So I, I guess in terms of Martin Scorsese's whole repertoire, Killers of the Flower Moon is his uh, sixth longest film. And there are some parts in this movie that feel longer than others, but it is a very important and respectable film. It has some flaws, and some of it involves the pacing of the film. But overall, I actually enjoyed it very much. And while I did doze off, admittedly, during some scenes, particularly some of the slower scenes, I actually did not leave the theater once to go to the bathroom. Granted, I made sure to go to the bathroom before sitting through this film because I knew exactly how long it was, but I still didn't leave my seat. With that said, I think this film should have had an intermission. Back in the older days of films from the 1970s back, if there was an epic film like Lawrence of Arabia or Ben-Hur that came out that was literally about four hours long, they did put intermissions in the middle of the movie. I don't know why they don't do that now with films this long, but they should actually reinstate that because other than cinephiles like me, some people who see this kind of film need a break. But length of the film aside, let me tell you what the film is about. This is a true story, and it's based on the book of the same name, whose long title is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, that was written by American journalist David Gran about the Osage Indian murders that took place during the 1920s. And in this movie, and sadly in real life, members of the Osage Nation in the United States, and the Osage Nation are largely circulated in Oklahoma, are murdered under mysterious circumstances in the 1920s, which starts a major FBI investigation that involves J. Edgar Hoover. Now, interestingly enough, even though J. Edgar Hoover's name is mentioned in this film, and even though Leonardo DiCaprio very famously played or portrayed J. Edgar Hoover in the movie J. Edgar, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, J. Edgar Hoover is not depicted in this film, but honestly, he doesn't need to be. Instead... The FBI agent who is overseeing the Osage murders is a an agent who is probably a composite character. His name in the film is Tom White, and he's played very well by Jesse Plemons in a strong supporting performance. And Jesse Plemons has been in a number of great movies and TV shows. I mean, one of his best performances was in Breaking Bad, and I hated him so much in Breaking Bad, but that was just a testament to his character. Nothing personal against him. But the focus of the movie is on a World War I veteran by the name of Ernest Burkhart, who's played here by Leonardo DiCaprio. And he moves back to 
Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, to find that things have changed. First of all, the Osage tribe has discovered oil in their fields and very much against the usual stereotype of indigenous people, particularly indigenous people in America, the Osage tribe got very rich. And because they got very rich, their area of Oklahoma became a very well-populated part of the state. And it also attracted some other people who were not of Osage or even indigenous blood, including Ernest Burkhart's uncle, William Hale, who's played by Robert De Niro. Now, it goes without saying to a lot of film bluffs that Martin Scorsese has directed Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio in several excellent films. And Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro have acted together in some great films as well, like This Boy's Life and Marvin's Room, the latter of which they didn't share a scene together, but still, they acted in the film. But this is the very first film that Martin Scorsese has directed both Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro in. And it's good to see the two of them together again, and they have better familial relationships than they did in This Boy's Life, rest assured. And William Hale, again portrayed by Robert De Niro, is a white man, just to get that out of the way. He may not even be Italian, but that's, I guess, another story and another speculation for another time. And he has assimilated himself so well into the Osage community and also learned how to speak the Osage language so much that he's seen to the Osage people as an ally. But... As the movie progresses, you begin to question both the motives of Robert De Niro's character and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, especially when Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest Burkhart, marries a woman who is full-blooded indigenous and a member of the Osage tribe by the name of Molly, whose married name becomes Molly Burkhart, who's played here by a lesser-known actress, but still one with a lot of experience, Lily Gladstone. And Lily Gladstone is of legitimate Native American descent. And I say that because Hollywood has had a history of portraying Indians by people who don't have any indigenous blood in them. For example, that's one of the black marks that the excellent John John Ford film, The Searchers, had. The... Natives in that movie are played by white people, and the stereotypes are quite abhorrent in retrospect. But here, not only are the Native Americans actually played by Native Americans, they're also bashing some other stereotypes that they live in teepees or they're on reservations. And that's true for certain segments of people, but this is a depiction of Native Americans that arguably has not been seen in any mainstream American movie to date. And that's great to see. However, with that shift in Native American stereotypes, there are also some very abhorrent things that go on in this film. There are murders that take place among the Osage tribe, including murders of the family of Molly Burkhardt, including, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly who gets murdered here, but each and every murder in this film is shocking. And it also goes against some of the history that we may have learned in school about white people's treatment of the indigenous people. We usually hear about, you know, very frank discussions about how the Jamestown settlers treated the natives, how the pilgrims did, and how General Custer got what he deserved. But the mistreatment of the indigenous people did not end with General Custer, and it also wasn't as belligerent as General Custer. And there's also a quote from General Sheridan where he said, the only good Indian I've ever seen is a dead Indian. It's it's an abhorrent thing to say, but it is in the history books. Definitely look it up. But even though the savagery through which white people murdered indigenous people had largely subsided by the 1920s, prevalent opinions amongst 
white people who settled and assimilated into America against the indigenous people sadly hadn't changed. And the success that the Osage tribe had with their newfound oil that made them very wealthy increased that resentment and increased the genocide that happened within that tribe. It's really shocking to see. It's very sad, but unfortunately it is true. And kudos to Martin Scorsese for giving an honest portrayal of the treatment of indigenous people in this movie. This film doesn't pull any punches. And one of the other things I loved about the film was you're not exactly sure if the protagonist, the main protagonist, Ernest Burkhart, is well-intended or not. And the movie keeps you guessing as to what his motives actually are and what his motivations are. And that is one of the driving forces and one of the main strengths behind this movie. However, with the and the same could also be said with Robert De Niro's character, William Hale. With that said, though, there are some weaknesses to this film that I don't think would make it Martin Scorsese's best. For example, there are some moments in this three-hour, 26-minute movie that are very draggy, and there are parts where I nodded off. And I do think that there could have been 40 minutes that had been trimmed from this film to make it a a better-paced movie. But I think Martin Scorsese has enough clout now in, well, in America, let alone the film industry, where he can make however long a movie he wants to, and he takes advantage of that. But I, I did think some of the film could have been trimmed, and if Martin Scorsese would be so inclined to release a shorter version of the film, I think that a lot more people would be less reluctant to see it. I also did not think that Leonardo DiCaprio was the best choice to play Ernest Burkhart, primarily because of his age, because Leonardo DiCaprio is 48 years old now. And the reason I say he's too old, it might be an audacious thing to say, I think he's too old for this role because he plays a World War I veteran who comes back and a lot of World War I veterans, unless they were generals, were no older than 30. And he's significantly older than that. And the movie didn't use any special effects to make him younger. And that is maybe a good and a bad thing because that technology hasn't quite been perfected yet. It still looks kind of weird. But at the same time, I do kind of feel like an actor like Adam Driver would have been <clears throat> better for this role. But... Overall, while Killers of the Flower Moon does have its weaknesses, I still was transfixed by all the parts for which I on at which I didn't nod off. Which is why I give Killers of the Flower Moon my rating of a marginal knockout. I don't think it is the best film of the year, but it is one of the best films. But when it's longer than Oppenheimer and it doesn't quite have that figurative bang. Of course, Oppenheimer had a literal bang to it, but that wasn't the best part of the movie. But I do think that Oppenheimer probably exceeds Killers of the Flower Moon by being a better film, but I still thoroughly enjoyed the film. Even though I thought that Leonardo DiCaprio was miscast simply because of his age, I still thought there were scenes in this film where he acted very well and very powerfully, especially in a scene where one of his family members dies. I'm not going to say who, but it is a very powerful scene. I also thought that Jesse Plemons made a great supporting actor. Lily Gladstone made a fantastic supporting actress, and she's just one of the Native American actors in this film who turned in a terrific performance. There are other notable actors in this film like John Lithgow and Brendan Fraser who appear very briefly, almost too briefly, but they also turn in great performances. Not to mention, I could see this film get nominated for Best Picture. It may not win, but it'll definitely be nominated. I could see it be nominated in the acting categories, set design, costume, a lot of those big awards uh, technically I could see this film winning or at least being nominated for those. I'm not going to say it will win because the year is young and there are plenty other Oscar contenders to come out in the next few months, but 
Killers of the Flower Moon is a film that you are going to hear about again, especially during awards season. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that's called Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. It is directed by not one, not two, but three people, and all of them are women. And I think that's very appropriate. I wouldn't necessarily be against a documentary like this if it was directed by one or more men, but it has a certain poignancy to to have been directed by women. The directors, by the way, before I change the subject, are Miri Navasky, Mavo Boyle, and Karen O'Connor. And this film is, as you might expect, a film about legendary singer and activist Joan Baez, who, at the end of a 60-year career, takes an honest look back and a deep look inward as she tries to make sense of her large history-making life and the personal struggles she's kept private. Joan Baez, I'm a, I Am a Noise, runs... A total of 1 hour 53 minutes. But interestingly enough, even though it runs nearly two hours, Joan Baez has has had such a prolific life and career that I would imagine even making a documentary about her that encompasses pretty much all of her accomplishments might take a six-hour movie or a miniseries easily. But... I still enjoyed it, and I still thought the documentary was very well-paced. Of course, we got a lot of retrospective interviews here from Joan Baez herself, who is, while she's retired from making music, she's still alive. And as a matter of fact, on October 20th, 2023, I had the privilege of not only attending one of the premiere screenings of the documentary, but I attended the screening with Joan Baez herself in attendance. And at the end of the film, she and Jack White, the Jack White of the White Stripes, actually came out and had uh, an informal interview that lasted about 15 minutes. It wasn't a Q&A in the sense that audience members could ask questions, which is unfortunate because even though I go to some of these events and I'm a little bit reluctant to ask questions, I'm kind of shy that way, I had a lot of questions for Joan Baez, but it was still great to see her, see such a legend literally within feet of me. And it was also great to see her perspective here on her life and some of the changes that she's implemented, the ups and the downs. Some of the downs you might expect from Joan Baez, like for example, some of her career downs, like some covers of albums that she kind of regretted taking, although I think she was being a little too hard on herself, and also the times where she was admitted to taking quaaludes to calm her nerves when she was performing, and also the effect that that had on her. But it's also great to see her perform not only when she was younger in the 60s in, in such monumental events like the March on Washington in 1963, but also later when she was playing smaller venues but still had such a profound impact uh, on her audience, which was made up of many different people of different ages, colors, and creeds. And she had the same effect when I went to... S- when I saw this screening and also saw the, the Q&A that took place. But this documentary is very fascinating. It actually shows a lot of previously unseen to the public home movies, artwork, diaries, therapy tapes, and audio recordings. And the audio recordings are mainly amateur, done on cassette tapes and not done professionally, but it was very unique to see a lot of these notes. And I actually found that 
uh, the notes had such a profound emotional impact on me. Plus, you also saw a lot of her artwork, all of which was drawn by Joan Baez herself. And I actually did like how animation was actually incorporated into these drawings, which literally made these drawings come to life. And I thought it was a very neat effect. I don't think it was one of those effects that would pander to kids or people with short attention spans. I don't know if children would watch this movie. It's not rated, but I don't I don't think there's anything that's really inappropriate here for children. Although there are some frank discussions about some sexual abuse that Joan Baez experienced when she was a minor. And I'm not going to reveal exactly what happened and who actually did this to her. It is harrowing to note, and it's also very harrowing to see the after result of this when Joan Baez revealed this very, very harsh truth for the first time. Other than Joan Baez giving up her materials, all the unseen and unread things that I just said, and being interviewed, she doesn't have any hand in actually making this documentary, which I think is good because there are a lot of things here that Joan Baez uh, confesses and sometimes she might seem a little bit too hard on herself, but there are other times where she's really candid and uh, to a point where it makes the viewer uncomfortable. But if it makes the viewer uncomfortable, you can imagine how it makes the subject feel. But I admire Joan Baez even more now. I mean, I've always admired her for her, politics, for her willingness to take a stand, and also for her honesty. And I think her honesty actually expands tenfold in this very important and mesmerizing film. Joan Baez, I Am a Noise is a documentary to which I give my rating of a knockout. Joan Baez herself is very fascinating, and this film could have gone on for another hour, and I still would have been easily transfixed. Although, just like Killers of the Flower Moon, the film that I reviewed before, Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, I would have probably had to make more time to see a three-hour documentary, but a miniseries or even you know a very long documentary is not out of the question because I think that Joan Baez has a lot more fascinating stories to tell to which this documentary did not even scratch the surface. And that's a testament to how great Joan Baez is. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and I've reviewed one film in on this episode of this show so far that was three hours, 26 minutes. That was a long time. And then I reviewed another documentary after that that was almost two hours. So it's almost fitting that uh, the next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is actually going to be two films, both of which are directed by the Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. And for those of you who don't know Mr. Almodovar's or Senor Almodovar's repertoire, it includes, but is not limited to, uh, Habla con ella, also known as Talk to Her, which made a big splash in 2002, The Skin I Live In, which came out in 2011 and stars Antonio Banderas, and Broken Embraces, which came out in 2009 that stars Penelope Cruz. She also starred in another Pedro Almodovar film, Volver, uh, in uh, 2006. And there are other films on Pedro Almodovar's uh, repertoire, but this is unique because... He directed two short films, both of which were released on the same billing. At the Bellcourt, which, again, is my favorite theater, this was advertised at at this theater and no doubt at other independent theaters across the country as the Almodovar Shorts. Uh, 
And the first short that he directed is a surreal Western that's called Strange Way of Life that stars Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke. And after 25 years, Silva, who's played by Pedro Pascal, rides a horse across the desert to visit his friend, Sheriff Jake, who's played by Ethan Hawke. They celebrate the meeting, but the next morning, Jake tells him that reason for his trip is not to go down the memory lane of their friendship. And I don't want to spoil anything because there is an interesting development here that goes on between Silva and Sheriff Jake. You realize the extent of their friendship, and even if I make a comparison of this film to another independent film that was critically praised when it came out years ago, and I'm not even going to tell you the year it came out because that would spoil the twist of this film, but it's still a very affecting film, and Pedro Pascal who's a very hot commodity today, largely because of his role on The Mandalorian, the Star Wars show, acts incredibly well in this film. And Ethan Hawke and he have great chemistry together. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say, because if I say any more about their relationship here, it's just going to spoil something. But you learn about their friendship and you also learn about the origins of their friendship especially since young Jake Ethan Hawke's younger counterpart is played by Jason Fernandez and Pedro Pascal's younger counterpart is played by Jose Condesa in a flashback scene that is also very powerful so there are some funny moments in this short but it's also kind of ironic that it's a western and usually Westerns that are directed by John Ford are very hyper-masculine. But this one takes the standard Western and gives it a twist that I think is very welcome. So Strange Way of Life gets my rating of a knockout. And I would not be surprised to see this film nominated for Best Short Feature at the Oscars later. But again, anything could happen. But the other short that is directed by Pedro Almodovar, is a film that was actually completed in 2020 and stars Tilda Swinton and only Tilda Swinton, or I should say primarily. And it's about a woman, or I I should tell you the title of the short. The title of the short is The Human Voice. And this is the equivalent to kind of a one-act play, or rather a one-act play that has one person in it that you'd see on stage. And Tilda Swinton plays an unnamed woman who lives in a very luscious and lavish apartment as she watches time passing next to the suitcases of her ex-lover, who is supposed to come pick them up, but never arrives. And her Tilda Swinton's other co-star is actually a restless dog. And while I don't normally give you the name of the dog, in this case, it's Dash. And, you know, what difference does the name of a dog make? But either way, I suppose the dog is acting well as as a dog can. But he's certainly a very comic relief here. Who And the dog doesn't understand that his master has abandoned him. And as I read that sentence... My heart kind of sinks a little bit, but these are two living beings, a woman and a dog who are facing abandonment. And the first part of this 30 minute short shows Tilda Swinton sort of vindictively taking out her frustration and her anger on her ex-lover's things. And then the second part of it has her actually speaking on the phone to this ex-lover and you never hear the ex-lover's voice, but It's really a testament to some excellent actors that they can speak convincingly over the phone, even though, as movies and plays go, there isn't technically somebody else on the other end. But Tilda Swinton absolutely had me sold when she was speaking on the phone and also pouring her heart out to this person. And the movie was probably made during the pandemic. It was, according to IMDb, finished in 2020, as opposed to Strange Way of Life, which was finished 
in 2023, supposedly. So I think the human voice definitely had some metaphorical parallels to what was going on in the world in 2020. We all remember that horrible year, largely because we were, many of us were isolated from all human contact. I know, or almost all human contact. And I think this movie serves as a great metaphor for that. In addition to a lot of the frustration that many of us who were isolated certainly felt at that time. I'm glad we went through it. Hopefully we never go through a period like that ever again. And rest assured, there were people who suffered the fate of getting COVID-19 who experienced much worse fates than those people who were isolated. But The Human Voice is another great short from Pedro Almodovar and also another excellent performance by Tilda Swinton. An actress who is not afraid to be weird. She's basically unafraid in general. And I think that serves her very well in this film. And also, she could perform this show on stage and be equally as effective. The fact that it's a movie gives her actually a lot more room to grow and for her character to thrive. And I think that serves her very well. Which is why I give The Human Voice, the other short that I saw by Pedro Almodovar, my rating of a knockout. I don't know exactly why Pedro Almodovar not only directed these films, but also wrote them. He was the only writer, the only credited writer of Strange Way of Life, and a co-writer of The Human Voice, which he co-wrote with Jean Cocteau. But they're both different short films, but they're also very original and very affecting. And they have a lot of human emotion to drive them. That's fortunately driven by some excellent actors in this case, Pedro Pascal, who's proves in this film that he's more than just a hot commodity who stumbled onto star Wars, Ethan Hawke, who does not just give his first performance here and Tilda Swinton. In fact, when the movies were packaged together as as one, you know, basically a, a one-hour marathon here, I actually kind of wished that Tilda Swinton's characters and Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal's characters could have intersected in some way. But at the same time, I think that might have been seen by some as gimmicky. But I think that Pedro Almodovar, if he was so inclined to be ironic while also ambitious could actually pull it off without seeming haughty but either way he directed two excellent short films that i enjoyed very much Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get to my final segment, or at least the first part of my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and, if I have time, on streaming for the week of October 23rd through October 28th, 2023. Yeah, October is almost over. It's hard to believe. And we are five-sixths of the way through 2023. It's kind of amazing. I'll have a retrospective on how I thought movies were in 2023, in addition to how I thought 2023 was in January of 2024 when I come back to do my show. But on October 21st, 2023, there are two films that are coming out that look to be one-time events. So I'm not going to say, I'm definitely not going to see these films, but I'll let you know what they are. Uh, the first one is 
a Metropolitan Opera production of Dead Man Walking, which was turned into an opera, which was oversaw, which was overseen by Sister Helen Prejean, who was the real-life figure whom Susan Sarandon portrayed in an Academy Award-winning performance in the 1995 film of the same name, Dead Man Walking. Susan Sarandon definitely deserved that Oscar for that role. The other movie is not actually a movie. It's UFC 294. So this is one of those live events, and it looks like Mankachev and Oliviera are going to be rematching there. So if you are just going to um, check out a UFC event, then there you go. But I'm not going to check that out. On October 24th, 2023, there's a film that's going to be released that's called The Domino Revival, which is a documentary that actually looks very uh, intriguing. And it is about if it's it's about a man by the name of Mike Signorelli and a group of revivalists during a pivotal period in our nation's history. As society's fascination with the supernatural intensifies, oh my God, I almost regret saying that I was uh, excited for this. When I heard the Domino Revival, I thought it was people who played those YouTube videos of extreme dominoes, but here's the synopsis. As society's fascination with the supernatural intensifies, this film unveils the awe-inspiring power of Jesus Christ. Through compelling gospel preaching, documented miracles, triumph over despair, and liberation from demons, the Domino Revival captures the essence of spiritual hunger and delivers a profound cinematic experience. So I spoke too soon when I looked at the summary, or rather told you that I was excited about this film. I thought it was about people who line up dominoes and then knock them down. That's pretty exciting, and it would make a great documentary. I'm not against the religious documentaries here, but again, this is a film I probably won't see, and it looks like one of those one-time events at Fathom, especially considering that it's opening on October 24th, which is a Tuesday in 2023. So, If you want to see that film, by all means, go ahead, but I probably won't. But we move on to October 27th, which is a Friday, and there is a huge film that's coming out on October 27th, or should I say is subject to be released on October 27th, and that film is Five Nights at Freddy's, the movie. I almost said Fab Nights at Freddy's. I was looking at something else, but... Five Nights at Freddy's is a very subversive video game. I think it started out as a video game. And it's now considered a media franchise. The first video game of the same name was released on August 8th, 2014. And the resultant series has since gained worldwide popularity. So it was only a matter of time before they made a movie out of Five Nights at Freddy's, which is classified as a horror film. And it's actually perfect that this film came out the weekend before Halloween. But it involves a troubled security guard who begins working at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, which is kind of like Chuck E. Cheese, except gone evil. And during his first night on the job, he realizes that the night shift won't be so easy to get through. Pretty soon, he will unveil what actually happened at Freddy's. The director of this film is Emma Tammy, and I feel like a film like this could be really well-directed by somebody like Tim Burton or... Well, James Bobin, for for example. I, I was trying to think of his name. He directed the uh, Muppets and Muppets Most Wanted. And while he directed some bad movies, he's, he's very good with felt. But this movie actually stars a few people that I know, including Josh Hutcherson from The Hunger Games, in addition to other films, and Mary Stuart Masterson, who I haven't heard from in a while. In terms of other actors, those are the only ones that I recognize. Oh, Matthew Lillard also makes an appearance here. Um, This is a film that definitely looks to be fun. I don't exactly know if if they're going to go straight up horror or play this for its campiness. But either way, I really want to see it because animatronic figures that 
go evil and begin murdering people sounds very fun. It's not going to be one of the best films of the year like Killers of the Flower Moon or Oppenheimer or even Barbie, I don't think. But I'm very interested to see how this film turns out. And when I see Five Nights at Freddy's, I will let you know what I think on a future show. And the director, Emma Tammy, is one with whom I'm unfamiliar. And as it turns out, this is only her second film, the second feature film that she's directed. She also directed a film in 2018 that was called The Wind, which is a horror film, but I haven't seen it. So this is definitely going to be her breakthrough film, and I'm very interested to see what Emma Tammy does with Five Nights at Freddy's. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 27th is a movie that's called Freelance. And this movie, unlike Five Nights at Freddy's, has uh, actors in it who I actually do know very well. And the movie is about an ex-Special Forces operative who takes a job to provide security for a journalist as she interviews a dictator, but a military coup breaks out in the middle of the interview and they are forced to escape into the jungle where they must survive. So this is an action comedy that stars John Cena, Alison Brie, Alice Eve, and Christian Slater, amongst other people. So John Cena and Alison Brie are starring together in this film where they are probably going to have romantic relations after they are just mad at each other throughout the majority of the film. That's how I predict this film is going to happen, but... John Cena is very funny. Alison Brie is underrated as a comedic actress, but is fortunately getting more and more of the attention that she deserves. I just hope she's not pigeonholed in the same way Jennifer Lopez had been because Alison Brie deserves better than to be pigeonholed, honestly. For that matter, Jennifer Lopez did too, but that's another story for another time. But Freelance is a film that I probably will see, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on October 27th, 2023 is a film that's called After Death. And this is a documentary based on real near-death experiences. And After Death explores the afterlife with the guidance of New York Times bestselling authors, medical experts, scientists, and survivors that shed a light on what awaits us. The director of this documentary is Stephen Gray, who directs this along with Chris Ratke. And I could go on about the people who are in the film, but they're not actors, so I'll pass. But if it's a film that I see, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released on October 27th, 2023, is a movie that's called Suitable Flesh. And this is a horror thriller that actually does star some familiar names. And it is about a psychiatrist who becomes obsessed with one of her young clients with multiple personalities. The director of this film is Joe Lynch, and this is apparently based on a story written by H.P. Lovecraft, because H.P. Lovecraft is given co-writing credit, which is impossible because H.P. Lovecraft is dead. But the film stars Heather Graham, who we haven't seen in a leading role in a while. Uh, It also stars... Juliette Lewis, Jonathan Skayach, Bruce Davidson, and Barbara Crotton. So this film looks like it could be fun. I'm not guaranteeing that it will be a good film, but it certainly looks like one of those films that might be fun to see in how ha- you know around Halloween where it's coming out. But I might see this film. I can't guarantee it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters on October 27th is a movie that's called Inspector Sun, and it is directed by Julio Soto Gurpide, and its original title is Inspector Sun y la Maldición de la Vieda Negra. Um, And I'm not sure what all those words mean. I am conversational in Spanish, but not fluent. But anyway, it is about a spider by the name of Inspector Sun, who boards a seemingly normal plane for a much-needed vacation. But when when an enigmatic millionaire receives a threat on his life, Sun, or Soon, is back on the case. Trapped in a web of lies, Soon must find the culprit before it's too late. And as I said previously, trapped in a web of lies is... 
code for Inspector Soon being an anthropomorphic spider. And the movie has looks like it has some English-speaking voice actors in it, but no, no A-listers that I know of. But the animation, or at least the animation that I could see, or the design of the characters, looks very unique. And this looks like a film that could be one of those films you see every year around Halloween, like The Nightmare Before Christmas or Wendell and Wild. And those are the animated ones. But Inspector Soon looks like a, a, a fun film. I can't exactly guarantee that I'm going to see it, but if it comes out in a theater near me and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed a vast majority of the movies that are subject to being released in theaters on the week of October 24th through 27th, 2023, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, where I go through as many films that are going to be released, original films, on streaming as I possibly can. So on Tuesday, October 24th, on Netflix, there's a documentary that's labeled as a TV miniseries that's coming out that's called Get Gotti. And this is told from both sides of the law, where this documentary series from the makers of Fear City follows the FBI's battle to bring down infamous mob boss John Gotti. John Gotti, who was known as being the Teflon Don, because it seemed like throughout the 80s and just the short part of the 90s, John Gotti was a celebrity because he could do a lot of things and the FBI couldn't touch him. But that was until Sammy the Bull Gravano testified against John Gotti and put him away in prison for the rest of his life. Armand DeSante made an incredible film or starred in an incredible film where he played John Gotti and that that film was for HBO. I guess it was intentional it was intended to be released in the theaters, but unfortunately it didn't get the chance, but it was still a very well-regarded film that's very much unlike the film where John Travolta starred as John Gotti. But Get Gotti definitely has a very hot topic on its hands, and I'm very interested to see how this miniseries turns out. I can't guarantee that I'm going to see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. On Wednesday, October 25th, there is one film that's going to be premiering as a Netflix original, and it is called Burning Betrayal, which sounds like one of those... um, one of those soap opera titles. <laughs> it would definitely make an intriguing soap opera because soap operas know how to tell stories, whether you like them or not. But this is a foreign film that looks like it's Portuguese. And it's about a woman by the name of Bobby who discovers a betrayal by her long-term partner and decides to embark on a new adventure in life. On this journey, she meets Judge Marco and they begin to live a story permeated by a lot of sexual tension. So, yeah, this feels like a melodrama. It's definitely titled like a melodrama. I can't exactly say that I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And on Friday, October 27th, there are two films that are going to be premiering as Netflix originals on Netflix. The first one is called Pain Hustlers. And this sounds like a drama. And, oh, actually, it is a film that looks to be the biggest film on streaming. And it stars Emily Blunt and Chris Evans, in addition to Andy Garcia. 
And when Andy Garcia is in a movie like this, you probably know they're not going to make any sequels to this. Because Andy Garcia, who's not a bad actor, but I've joked about this many times, whenever he's in a movie or he makes an appearance in a franchise, that usually is the death toll for franchises. Which is probably why Andy Garcia has not yet appeared in an MCU movie. But he might as well appear in a DCEU film. But that aside, let me tell you about Pain Hustlers. It's about a woman named Liza, who's played by Emily Blunt, who dreams of a better life for herself and her daughter. She gets a job at a bankrupt pharmacy, and Liza's guts catapult the company and her into the high life, putting her in the middle of a criminal conspiracy. So the posters at least look like a little bit like a comedy, but it's classified as a crime drama. And in addition to Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, and Andy Garcia... Catherine O'Hara also co-stars in this film, in addition to Jay Duplass, Brian Darcy James, and several other noteworthy actors. So this looks like a film I might go out of my way to see. I can't guarantee it, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the other film that will be premiering on Netflix as a Netflix original is a film that's called Sister Death. And this looks like a foreign film, and it is, and it is, it's made... It's directed by Pedro, excuse me, Paco Plaza directed it. And man, the poster to this film looks horrific. Um, It is about a nun who's a novice nun whose name is Narcissa, who has supernatural gifts and joins a school to teach young girls. This is a horror mystery. And before I go as far as to say that it's great a movie like this comes out around Halloween, This is horror involving the Catholic Church, so you know it's going to be really frightening, and not in that fun way that Halloween films are genuinely frightening. So as I said, it's directed by Paco Plaza and written by a man whose last name is way too long for me to pronounce correctly the first time, so I'm not going to pronounce it for you right now. But the star of the film is Aria Bedmar, who uh, plays Hermana Narcisa. And it's interesting that her name is Narcisa, because you think Narcisa, you think Narcissus or Narcissist. So it's ironic that her name would be that, but that's probably one of the reasons why the devil presumably comes after her in this film. It looks like a very intense film. I'm not necessarily saying I'm going to see it, but it looks promising. And if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.